welcome to the Tough Cookie Podcast, sharing stories of amazing inspiration, hope and resilience from transplant recipients and people with chronic illnesses. And here's your host, Patricia Shades. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Tough Cookie Podcast. Um, My name is Patricia, and I'm so happy to have you guys here again with me today. Um, And also joining me is the lovely Miranda, who has multitude of stories to tell but uh, I just want to get straight into it and get started because we were actually talking just off air a moment ago and we were starting to get really carried away. (laughs) So welcome Miranda and thank you so much for joining me. Hi, thanks for having me. So you're an organ recipient, an egg donation advocate and just a bit of a rock star in the donation world really. So tell me all about yourself. Uh, well, my name's Miranda. I'm 37. Um, I've been a heart patient. I was diagnosed with dilated cardiomyopathy when I was 21 years old. So I think that means I've been living as a as a heart patient for 16 years, um, which is, I guess, it's a long time. And I, you know, life for me as a heart patient is just really normal. Um, uh, so I was, yeah, so I was diagnosed at 21 with um, dilated cardiomyopathy, which is disease of the heart muscle. Um, mm-hmm. And it just meant that the pump of my heart was broken. So, or it was, it was um, slowly deteriorating. So I, um, I would get breathless uh, walking around and um, even towards the end of my heart failure, journey um I would even be breathless just having a conversation like having a conversation with you right now just uh would be really uncomfortable and you would be able to hear me like sort of puffing away um which I was really self-conscious about um for a really long time especially in my 20s I don't know about you but I um I I was labeled a few times by people as being lazy um yep or, or, you know, or unfit or where really and truly I had this, I had this heart that was failing on me and, and I wasn't anywhere near as vocal, uh, back then as I am now. I sort of, um, I'm comfortable with, with myself now and I'm, and I'm comfortable talking about chronic illness and disease and Mm. life post-transplant and things like that, um. So I, I carry a few scars there actually um, about, you know, just, just people deciding that, you know, I couldn't walk as fast as, as them so I I was lazy. Yeah, um, yeah. so you weren't sort of normal, so to speak, yeah. as, as what other people would perceive normal to be and so yeah. Yeah. because you're young, therefore you should be able to, to run a marathon or walk, yeah. you know, or- 10 k's at the speed of light and things yeah. like that. So when you can't, it really becomes... Yeah, you get you get labelled absolutely. Yeah, you kind of and, get flagged as a certain kind of person, and that's yeah. It wasn't who I was in my soul, um, of course. But I had this physical ail- ailment that wasn't. Um, it, it's invisible, so mm. you can't see someone's heart failing. It's you. You either know the signs or you don't know the signs, and you label them as something else. Or you, yeah. Um, and did you and did you know prior to being twenty one that you had this condition? So 
so my father had passed away at 31 from cardiomyopathy, dilated cardiomyopathy. Yep. My grandmother wow. had passed away at 29, his his mum, when he was three. And she, we never really, I now have her death certificate and I can see that it it's been labelled as um, left ventricular failure, which is heart failure. Um, yep. So we know... I I knew that my father had died, but he was told he had a virus. So you never, um, and that's just where science was up to in 1982 when he was diagnosed. Um, He was diagnosed just a few days after I was born, but um, and he died 16 months later. Um, But, yeah, so I had had... Um, some I'd had palpitations and was told that I had a leaky valve at the age of 19. Um, yeah. And I'd always been quite aware of my heartbeat. Um, but a lot of doctors will say to you that as a young woman, young women can often be aware of their heart beating. Um, yeah. Whether we just have like a thinner chest wall or we're not as muscly as men or you know, we we can be quite aware of what happens inside of our chest. So, um, you know, things were sort of put down to that. But it was at 21 uh, that I ended up going to my GP who initially diagnosed gallstones um, and ignored on the um, the report from the... Um, ultrasound on my gallbladder, completely ignored a, a, a paragraph that said I had um, pericardial and um, pericardial effusion, which was uh, fluid on my heart and also fluid in my lungs. And I was 21. Which is kind of noteworthy. Well, it's, yes. It's, and it's not a normal. Yes, but so I have met so many women over the years because I talk to everyone I can possibly talk to. Um mm so many women over the years that were misdiagnosed um, because they were young wow. because because a 21-year-old yeah. woman doesn't fit the description of someone living with heart failure. Yeah. So um, I remember at that appointment I even had fluid in my legs, which is what happens when your heart fails. It deposits fluid around your body. So the pumping action isn't strong enough to move that fluid around your body. So you get edema in your lower limbs and it builds and it builds. Um, this this edema was now around my heart and in my lungs as well. And I showed the doctor my feet and my legs and he still dismissed it. Um, it was my mother that night when I spoke to her on the phone that she said to me, I said to her, well, when I had the ultrasound on my gallbladder, they talked about f- fluid on my heart and in my lungs. And because she had n- nursed my father through his sickness and watched him die, for her, um, alarm bells went off and she took me straight back to the same practice, different, different GP the next day. And I found myself admitted into coronary care at St. George Hospital. Oh, wow. Um, So sudden, but, but just that, that, that random or not a random conversation, a regular conversation with your mum, but just that light bulb moment, obviously for her. I just happened to have a mother that knew the signs of heart failure. Of course. So, Better than a GP. That's a little uh, scary. Well, <laughs> and but it 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 happens, and I think part of what I do now is is I talk to a lot of patients and advocate uh, yeah. 
for patients because advocate for them to advocate for themselves. Yeah. Because because I think doctors are human as well, and sometimes we as patients aren't as good as expressing what we're feeling. Um, yeah. And sometimes you just need to push a little bit more, ask a few more questions. Um, but that kind of um, the knowledge that I have now and the, I guess, resilience I have now, that's come from 16 years of being a patient. Yeah, so, absolutely. And, yeah. and I guess just sort of touching on, on things like patient advocacy for, you know, for patients, mm. what advice do you have? Because I, I sort of, I, I've got a bit of a reputation of constantly pushing my doctors for, for questions and, and asking why for everything and it must drive them crazy. But I always figure if for any reason I'm that patient one day who can't answer for themselves, yeah, I fear for that moment because I, you know, I've been chronically ill 37 of my 37 years of existence. So mm-hmm. I know I know my body better than most doctors ever will and I've been a, a diabetic and a patient longer than most doctors have been in practice mm-hmm. that, that are looking after me. Yeah. But what, do, what what's your perspective on this sort of stuff? Um well, <laughs> so like you my doctors also know that if they are going to introduce a new drug to the to the repertoire of drugs I'm on or um, if they're going to do change anything, they know that I'm going to ask the questions like why do we need yeah. this? Is there a different option? What else could we do? What else can we think about, you know? Um, and I think that's just having confidence in in yourself and that they're not going to be they're not going to be angry at you that you that you're asking questions. I think I think sometimes as a patient, we feel like we don't want to take up too much time. Um, but we have to remember that, you know, we are the most important person in our in our healthcare. And um, and I think I think you build your confidence in that area. And I think yeah. um, I think acceptance has a lot to do with advocating for yourself as well, because you really need to accept uh where you are in in life and and what you are living with um mm. in order to to do the best with it um yep. yeah so i think i think yeah that's how i sort of feel a, a little more sort of um yeah i push i push a little bit harder and um yeah, and I do my own research, and I and I I know a lot. Look, I've been admitted to the ED when my specialists aren't around, and I've had emergency room doctors say, um, "Okay, I think you know more about what's going on in your body right now than what we do. So you tell us what you think you need, and and we'll go from there." And I'm and that's really, such a great moment. Yeah, I love really, that. Yes. I love it when they finally listen. I'm really thankful for that because yep. because um, nine times out of ten I'm I'm right I'm right about what the the transplant team will will tell them that I need um, yep. you know I might miss out a few steps or whatever but I generally I'm you know I I, I know me and I know you know or, or I've walked this path before so you know I've I've had um, 
cellulitis infection, you know, the skin infection quite a few times um, mm. when you've got a broken bit of skin and a little germ bacteria gets in. Um, yeah. The last time I had it, I was up at Maitland visiting my father or my my dad, my actual stepdad, but he's raised me all my life, so he's my dad. Um, yeah. It's confusing. Um especially when I talk about my biological father and then the father that raised me. Um, so I was up at Maitland Hospital and it took it, it took a little bit, but eventually they listened to me about this is this is what I need. Like I need an I, I need drugs through an IV, I need antibiotics. This is you know, this is what you're gonna have to do because I'm immune suppressed and this infection is not gonna go away with oral antibiotics. I need I need a good I need a good hit. And and there's lots of there are so many doctors that aren't used to seeing um, a transplanted heart or a failing heart in a young person. Absolutely. A person who is immune suppressed. Or at all. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I look, I don't I don't blame anyone for not knowing, but I really uh, I love that moment when a doctor sort of says, Okay, let's let's um, you know let's collaborate here with your help. yeah yeah because I've got knowledge yep. and you've got lived experience let's put it together so yeah um, absolutely yep. yeah yeah completely yeah so um yeah so that's well that's my my thoughts on that so um so I was 21 living with um heart failure when I was tw- how old am I now? I'm 37. That's my five-year-old, five-and-a-half-year-old boy called Harry. Say hi. 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 <laughs> um, I'm talking to Patricia, but you got to be. Um, so at the age of 26, I changed cardiologist. I had quite a few health things just going wrong, and my new cardiologist was um, – bit younger, a bit more forward thinking. Um, I met him through a heart failure nurse when I'd been admitted in hospital um, that that year and um, she got me an appointment with him and he listened to my entire history. He said, I don't think your father had a virus. I think that you've got something genetic um, and I don't think that you have insulin resistance and fatty liver and heart failure and high blood pressure and, you know, um, I have high cholesterol, all of all that stuff. He said, I don't think all of these things are randomly going wrong. I think they all come under one umbrella. So he sent me off to a geneticist. Um, my number one tip there would be if you are ever told to go to a geneticist, get life insurance first. Oh, wow. Yes. May I ask why? Because, enlighten, enlighten everybody listening. Because you may need that life, like you may want a life insurance policy for your family, for your your offspring, like later on down the track. Um, mm-hmm. And with a genetic diagnosis like mine, where no one has lived with this genetic illness past the age of thirty-one in my family, and I'm thirty-seven, no one will insure me. Yeah, of course. Knowing, of course. Knowing very, very wise words. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So if, if genetic There's, testing's ever in ever considered to be in your future, go and lock in a policy before. Fantastic. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's not fantastic, but actually very, <laughs> very wise words. Yes. Yeah. So I wish, look, I wish someone had told me that, but I, like I was 26, life insurance was not something on my yeah. radar. Well, yeah. Very, very low priority. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we found a genetic syndrome. Um, it's a lipodystrophy. It's so my, my, my kind of mutation, my, my kind of genetics surrounding this syndrome is, um, the occurrence is one in 15 million. So it's, it's crazy. And look now, nowadays when someone says, oh, you couldn't have that. It's so rare. I say, I don't believe in rare because someone has to have it. Yeah. You're Uh, that rare. Yeah. Like, like, but Patricia, you could say that, that, like you're, you're rare as well, but, but, but you have it. Like someone has to have it. Right. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, I absolutely. really don't. I just don't think that rare is is a thing. It's yep. It's just it's a lottery. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I say that too. I won the fifteen million lottery, just the wrong one. Just not the fifteen million dollars. <laughs> I won not, one not the one that people aim to win. <laughs> genetics, yeah. Um. So, so what that diagnosis gave me was. Um, it helped me accept what was happening because now I had a reason. Um, yeah. It wasn't something that I was afraid of because I was living with all of these health issues that I, it was as if I was an obese person living with with all of these, you know, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. Mm. All of that is really uh, fatty liver. They're, they're really uh, metabolic disease that an obese person would be living with. But also quite commonly something that an older person would be living with. Yes, yeah. But my and that's so my body my body thinks that it's obese. Yeah. Um and, and if and if we looked at and if, if anyone ever sees Miranda or Googles her name or whatever, she is anything uh, but obese, might I cut in and say. So yeah. it doesn't fit the bill. But so that's it, chronic illness for you, isn't it? It's so just it. here's the box and we don't tick it. Yeah. So it's a so it's a lipodystrophy too. So to explain my body, I don't have fat on my extremities, um, but I have mm. a round face and um, my tummy can be a bit bloated at times, um, but I have like really tiny legs and tiny arms and so I'm just a little bit different. And you know what, That's I'm fine with that now. I, I was not fine with that for a long time um, and that's a huge thing that I had to accept. Um, yeah. Um, and I think women in society, we're judged on our looks and we're judged on our bodies so much. We judge each other on looks and body yep. and shape. And, and therefore we judge ourselves. And therefore we judge ourselves. And I, that, like, to accept um, my, the way that I'm put together was a huge, that was that's something that came much later in my journey. Actually, it's only really happened in the last couple of years. Um, um, because look, and I always say to my friends, the grass isn't greener on the other side. My friends have got beautiful hips and thighs and butts and, you know, like these beautiful womanly figures. And and we joke and say, can I have some, you know, can we have a fat transplant? Can I have some, you know, can I have some of yours? Because I, I'd love to have, like, I wear leggings under my jeans to give me a bit of shape. Um, and, but I've been, I've been 
like I've been told that I'm anorexic. I've been told like, you know, put some food in you. And I'm like, oh, you've got no idea how much I can, I can probably eat more than you do. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, because, it's such a difficult thing. Yeah. It really yeah. truly is yeah. because you've got that part of society telling you things like that because your body is shaped the way it is. And to me, yeah. when I first met you, yeah, I just thought, you had a round face because you had you took prednisone like I do. Oh, and yeah, it yeah. Didn't because it's not to me. You didn't look any different. But then, yeah. coming from green, I guess a chronic illness background, you know not to judge anybody. Yeah. Well, look, I can pick a transplant patient now, and I'm sure you can. <laughs> yeah. Because we, I actually, um, when my baby was little, I was in a um, changing room at um, our local Westfield, and mm. um, a woman walked in, and she walked in and she walked straight up to me and she said oh my gosh hi how are you going I've seen you shopping with your mother in Coles um we live in the same suburb and I've seen you and I and I know that you're really sick and you've had a transplant and I was like whoa and it was just that she'd had a kidney transplant she she recognized it in me and you know she was one of those really beautiful people that I'm really thankful to inject themselves into my life even for a moment because because in that, you know, I was only just post-transplant, so I was, I my face was fuller than even normal. Um, yeah, and you feel very vulnerable earlier oh, on because you do, because everything out. has changed. Yeah, yep. like everything, yeah. And um, I, like, in in that moment, uh, yeah, they're not at the Spider-Man suit. Oh, I have a five-year-old wanting to change into a Spider-Man suit. Okay, okay. Um. His spidey senses are tingling. Yeah. Harry is beautiful. Yeah. Harry Harry is uh, marches to the beat of his own drum. That's my definition of my child. Um And it's a perfect one. Yeah, yeah. And he yeah, he loves it. He's um Look, he's grown up with me. Um, he was six months old, born via surrogacy, when I had my transplant. So um, for his whole life, I've been this this mum that disappears into yes, come here, disappears into hospital occasionally. And um, but now he does such beautiful things, like he hands me a bottle of Soda Stream fizzy water because that's how I take my pills. I take them in fizzy water because it's just how I manage to swallow all those pills every 12 hours yep. every day. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, um, come around this side and I'll, I'll do the back of the suit up. Um, so, you know, and he says, do you want some water to take your pills, Mum? Oh, I'll go get you some water. Like, you know, it's sort of, and, you know, that's just learning to, you know, get the, get the best out of our lives really. Absolutely. It's, it's an incredible trait to have inherited at such a young age as well. And so it's okay, there you go. Go it's it. so perceptive and, and all of that sort of stuff. It's gorgeous. It truly, yeah. truly is. Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 great. I'm very proud of him. So living my life, I obviously had uh, quite a few limitations, but I tried not to I tried not to let them affect me too much. Um I worked full time um, and sometimes that's like I only had energy to have a full-time job and and that was it. Um, 
I, uh, my mum used to say that, you know, I'd just drag myself to work every day. And I guess, um, yeah, and I guess um, uh, I, I was maybe the, just the way that I was brought up. Um, yeah. Um, that was just what I just what I knew, just just keep pushing, just keep keep getting through it. I I obviously have an extremely resilient mother who lost her first husband when her baby, her first baby was 16 months old. Um, you know, as I said, I was three days old when he was diagnosed. He walked in the hospital and uh, said to my mum, I've just been diagnosed with a chronic illness, I'm dying. Um Oh, with a gosh. chronic fatal illness, I'm I'm dying because back in 1982, heart yeah. failure it was a it was a death sentence. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, and he and then to ha- and then to have for her to have your mum, I should say, your mum to have a, a daughter with that same condition. Uh, been- yeah, she was in the hospital room when I was 21, and they told me that my heart was failing, and I and she just sat in the corner and was just in shock like because to her what happens in this illness is that you lost someone like two years later you lose less than two years um yeah so look the greatest way that this um this illness actually was was affecting me was that um I couldn't have a baby I was I was married and yeah and I I wanted to be a mum and um, my my own mum tried to tell me, you know, like being a mum isn't the be all and end all. Like you don't you don't need to have a baby. Mm. Like I think her her always her um the place that she was operating from was I need to protect my baby and if she has a baby then that you know like she's vulnerable and I'm not ready for that so yeah um, uh, look this is one way that I push my doctors I spoke to my um cardiologist and I spoke to and he sent me to high-risk obstetricians um mm-hmm. one of which said sure we'll you know we'll get you We'll get you through this. It might be a bit touch and go, but you know we'll get you through this. And I was like, oh, we can do this. And I don't think my cardiologist was too impressed with him. Um, he sent me to another another high risk obstetrician, um, and he went through. He got a book down off his shelf, and he went through. You know, my risk of stroke was eleven times higher than a than the average woman being pregnant, and my risk of all of this, and my chances of making it through a pregnancy alive and all of that all of that stuff yeah and then he closed his book and he looked at me and he said to me but I've been doing this job for long enough to know that you're a woman and you have your own ideas so let's talk about what what you want and what's in your head and and he spoke to me like I was Miranda not like wow. I was patient xyz yeah just another woman wanting to have a baby so um wow yeah how did that feel I mean that's yeah I was, I was taken aback yeah. I I'd, I'd almost I am too <laughs> I just who who just who was going to talk to me from a textbook 
like um so that was um that was good no I suppose what he said to me um it it helped me come to the realization that I was never going to have my own child or so I thought um yeah yeah so I then was I was also introduced to the team at St Vincent's around this time um, because my cardiologist at St George could foresee that potentially in the future I was going to need a heart transplant and obviously I was like, oh, this is overkill. Like I just take drugs every day of my life. I'm fine. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not that sick. Yeah, I know. I'm not that. Like, like I work full time. To need a transplant you have to be like, like you can't even get out of bed, right? You know. So, yeah. um, so I spoke to the team. Spoke to one of the professors at St Vincent's. Um, so St Vincent's Hospital is where they do all the heart and lung transplants in New South Wales. Um, yeah. So I spoke to the team there, and basically, the professor said to me, my husband said to him, on the way home that day, he said, "I'm going to take Miranda to the pet shop and." the job my professor said I think that's a great idea and we got a pug and and he's he's nine he lives with my mother (laughs) 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 he's still around um um yeah I was like okay okay so my body's not gonna not gonna carry a baby um But I had this amazing woman in my life, my best friend, um, who I ended up marrying her husband's brother. So she ended up being my sister-in-law. Um, <laughs> I know, I know. It's, it's a crazy life. It's really a crazy life. Um, we were best friends when I was diagnosed at 21 and she walked into my coronary care bed, like the the bed that I was in at coronary care, she walked into the private room and I said to her, Megs, what if I can't have a baby? And before she'd even had her own family, she just said to me, oh, it's okay, I'll carry it for you. And I was like, well, that doesn't wow. happen. Like that that just doesn't happen. So um, I kind yeah. of laughed at her because to me, um. I wasn't a Hollywood celebrity. I didn't have hundreds of thousands of dollars. I live in the southern suburbs of Sydney. Who on earth does surrogacy? Like, what? Yeah. Like, I didn't even. It's, it's one of those it's far-fetched ideas that you sort of hear about, but don't ever sort of really have much experience and in. I, I didn't even know it was legal in Australia. I still get questions about that. Was well, it legal? yeah, legal to do that, of yeah. course. Um, so I kind of laughed at her back then. That was two thousand and four. Um, yep. And then after a year, look, I spent I spent years accepting that I wouldn't have a baby. Um before yeah. I was ever able to say, Okay, yes, I'm ready for you to help me. Megan kept offering over the years and I I just kept putting it on the back burner. I just kept saying, Not yet, not yet, because I thought I was invincible. I thought that I could do it all on my own. So eventually 
Uh, the Christmas of 2012 was incredibly hard. Um, there are a couple of conversations that ha actually happened on Christmas Day. Um, uh, so there was a baby announcement and then um, one of my other sister-in-laws had said, Who, who's going to have the next baby? And, and um, you know, there's, there's, there's babies wandering around everywhere and toddlers and, and mm. I just could never say yes to that question. And so, of course, you kind of don't feel part of it almost. Oh, you just kind of like, yeah, I've got a, I've got a pug. <laughs> um, I've got a fur baby. <laughs> yeah, I've got a fur baby. Um, yeah, so it's kind of, you know, I, and, and again, I felt, I felt shame. Like I really felt shame that my body couldn't do what most women's bodies bodies do just quite easily or you know not not yeah. even IVF could help me um yeah because essentially my body wouldn't carry a baby and it just it just seems really unfair it was like adding insult to injury like you get to live with heart failure from the age of 21 and you're not ever going to be able to carry your baby like it's, yeah. it's kind and of when like, you're already got a and I think in a society once again where you're a female so therefore you should yeah, be able to do xyz thing and I know I think I, a baby is one of the top things in that list yeah. and it's, I know. It, you do feel and it's personal experience I feel like a bit of a failure because I can't yeah yeah so yeah, I, yeah. having to accept that is really difficult yeah and you just feel like you let your husband down, you let his family down, you, you know, it's absolutely it's that's kind of, that's that's tough. Um yeah. So it was Christmas of twenty twelve that really kicked me off into um I I was then able to turn to Megan and say, All right, like let's you know, let's let's see if we could go anywhere with this with surrogacy, you know, if if this could actually, you know, um, if this could actually happen, if you know, so um, yeah. so January 2013, and I um, I went to an IVF clinic in Sydney who I'd done my research, and they did a, they ran a surrogacy program. Um, I went and had my first appointment, I think, in February of 2013, um, and I fit the bill for surrogacy. I was one of those women that was um, that lived quite well with chronic illness. You know, I I was still but quite okay then. Um, yep. um, <laughs> <laughs> I know, all everything hits the fan soon. But um yeah. Um yeah, I I was a good candidate. So um I started the process of IVF, um, knowing that I carried a genetic disease. So I um was going to have any embryos that we created, I was gonna have them tested. It was called PGD. Um so it's pre-genetic uh, pre pre-genetic diagnosis I think 
So they test the embryo to see if it had inherited my genetic mutation. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I, I knew that I didn't want to pass it on. Uh, my parents didn't know that they were passing yeah. anything on, but I did. So that's where um, that's where you know it was different for me. I I had a real responsibility to end this really awful disease with me. Um, yep. But quite quickly, um, all the tests that I was doing um, showed that I was thirty years old, but I didn't have a um, I didn't have an egg supply. I didn't like my my body. My body was just you know it, I had maybe a small egg supply, but really and truly, after having to do genetic diagnosis on the embryos and eliminating like I'm I just may never get anything. So the fertility specialist was really he didn't want to he didn't even want to do a round of IVF on us um, because he just felt like we'd spend thousands of dollars and walk away with nothing. Um, yeah. So so difficult as well. Yeah, it was difficult, but I was, I I kind of put it into the context of, well, I had looked into adoption as well, and I I just wanted to love and raise a baby and a child. I I really didn't. I really wasn't in love with my own genetics. So um, yeah, if that meant that I wasn't going to have a genetic uh, child well then that that's fine um yeah so then uh I actually spoke to the fertility specialist about egg donation he told me that it would be very hard to find an egg donor I actually found a community of egg donors at egg donation Australia online um and I found I was offered uh by a woman to she would do an IVF cycle for us really, really quickly. And it was just, it was quite amazing. We, um, I, yeah, I just, I just shared our story online and I got to know this woman and Chris and I traveled down to Victoria to, to meet her and her family. And, um, it all felt really great. She had a two-year-old little girl and and a boy who was a little bit older. Um, actually he was probably about five when I met him. So probably about Harry's age now. Um, and, um, she did a cycle of IVF for us. She got 17 eggs. We were just blown away. It was amazing. She used to go up to Sydney with her daughter while she, while she, while she did the, um, while she had the operation, we gave her a little holiday in Sydney. Um, and half the eggs weren't viable. And then day one, half the eggs died. And then day three, another half of them died, half of that number. And then by day five, we had no embryos. They had nothing. And we were all just absolutely shocked. She felt um, so bad. And I, like, it was so, like, I said to her, this is not your fault. This This is no more your fault than it is our fault. Like this is this is no one's fault. This just wasn't meant to be. Like mm-hmm. no one could have yeah. foreseen this. She had a great egg count. She had a two-year-old child that she'd had naturally. There was nothing wrong with her eggs. It just 
didn't work. Um, yeah. We all we all went away to lick our wounds. Um, she actually reached out into her little egg donor community um, and she said, look, I, I can't help Miranda and Chris again. I She was really hung up on the money. Um, I... I didn't think so much about the money, but I thought about what this what this did to her. Like she felt so awful. Um, uh, anyway, she reached out to her community and she found us um, another egg donor in Queensland. Um, and this is this was Gemma and Gemma and I. Um, the first time we talked on the phone, we talked for two hours, um, and we just we just really clicked um, again. Chris and I went up to Queensland to meet her. And her little boy Cooper, um, and then we flew her down to Sydney, and um, she offered to be our egg donor, and it was just, it just felt really right. I remember Chris calling her our missing link. He just said, "I just feel like she was uh, our missing link," and um, and she was. Um, Gemma did a cycle of IVF for us. Um, so I think this was now January of 2014. I think her egg pickup was actually on Australia Day in January. Um, so we'd oh, been, wow. we'd been. This was a, this was over the course of a year. Um, uh, and Gemma got nine eggs, and she was devastated. She said, "You're doing surrogacy. You're going to need more than nine. Like this is terrible." And I said, "I said, Gemma, we've we've gone from none to nine. Like." I can't do that for me. Look what you just, you look what you've yeah. done for me. Um, yeah. My day five, which is day five embryos, which is the best embryo to have implanted, um, we had six grade A embry- embryos. So those numbers are amazing, absolutely amazing. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and it just, to me, it it's really not about, a lot of women talk about IVF. And talk about the quantity. I don't think it's quantity. I think it's quality. I really, really do. Um, so she, um, yeah. So she, she did that for us, and you know, she's she's amazing, and you know, we love her to death, and she's um, will always be part of our lives. Um, of course. Yeah, and so then the embryos went into the freezer for three months because. Um, you go on a, you go into quarantine because uh, it's surrogacy. So everyone, uh, so then Megan and Chris had to pass blood tests again um, three months after the embryos created so that we weren't putting Megan at risk of any infection that they may have. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So um, I looked forward to that three-month break um, <laughs> and <laughs> Because it was just so, you know, emotions were high and um, every conversation was just we talked about what was going to happen. And um, finally on the 2nd of June 2014, so Megan um, offered to be my surrogate in 2004 and in June 2014, a decade later, she had an embryo transfer. Um, wow. And that was surreal. Like we talked about this for a decade. It's it's yeah. crazy to even think about. Um, and, and also all this time your health was progressing 
as well. Is that is that correct? Your 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 prognosis has progressed in some way, shape, or form. So yeah. Right? So um. Yeah, I guess I was getting. I know there's a concurrent stories. <laughs> yes, yeah. So I I was getting progressively worse, although I was really good at hiding that, and I was really good at um just assuming that everything would be fine. Um. So. Yeah, I. <laughs> I remember telling the doctors at. St Vincent's that my surrogate was pregnant because 14 days later we found out Megs was pregnant first transfer amazing Um, amazing yes yes which resulted in Harry um yes yes so um yeah the doctors were like you found a loophole like and I said you you can't tell me that I can't do something like I've got to you know like I yeah I I look back and I was probably crazy. I was probably, yeah, I was crazy. Look, I was the only heart failure patient taking a newborn baby into hospital. Like I into, you know, clinic appointments and checkups. Um, so, so Megan was pregnant December of 2014. Uh, on a Sunday we had a baby shower. Um, I flew Gemma down. We celebrated Gemma and Megan and me and Harry and everyone who was part of this, you know, huge, you know, project, project baby. Um, and the next day on the Monday, I had an appointment at Vincent's Clinic uh, with a surgeon. I, my valve disease in my, my, the valves of my heart, the disease had progressed and I needed three of my four valves replaced. And I sat across from the surgeon and he told me that they'd had a meeting about my case and that he couldn't safely replace three of my four valves um, and that he would rather replace the entire organ. And wow. Uh, well, at that moment, I stopped hearing anything that he was saying. Um, um, my parents had come to the appointment with me, I think, I think we just all knew that this was going to be a big appointment, but we didn't know. It was just a sense yeah. that this was going to be a big one. Um, so Dad had been at my baby shower, so he hung around and he he came in and Mum and um, and well, my first <laughs> my first um, when I could talk again and when I realised what was going on, I. Um, my first reaction was no. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a baby. Like I'm going to be a mum in February. I'm, um, I'm. I can't have a new heart. Like I uh, had the battery changed in my defibrillator that I had implanted in my chest as my insurance policy. Um, I had the battery changed in October, thinking that um, I didn't. I wouldn't want to have to go through a battery change when I had a newborn baby and couldn't pick the baby up. So um, yeah, after an operation, so I was like, no, no. What do you mean? What do you mean the entire organ? Like that was that. I guess that that was shock. Um, that's that was that was shock coming through in me that I I didn't quite understand what that meant. Um, yeah. So 
look, I pleaded with my doctors. Um, I didn't want to start the transplant workup. As you know, it's long and involved and you're in organ failure. So the last thing you want to do is take yourself to blood tests and um, breast screening and um, pap smears and what, what do you do, skin checks and dental appointments and um, tissue typing. Every invasive procedure every, every, that you can possibly have done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you could describe and it, it gets condensed into a very small amount of time as well. Exactly. Yeah. And you're in organ failure. And I was expecting this little baby and I was like, I don't want to do all this. So um, my transplant yeah. team, uh, they let me be for a little bit. So Harry was born at 38 weeks on the 5th of February, 2015. Um, he was ready to enter the world. Um, as much as as much as anything, um, Megan was admitted to hospital at midnight. Harry was born at three fifteen. Um, she was told to push at three, wow. and he was born at three fifteen. So he was like, "Oh my goodness, hello world!" Um, and we went home from the hospital thirteen hours later, all of us. So wow. I remember taking. <laughs> the newest person on the planet home and going, what on earth do I do with this? What is this? <laughs> where's where's the instruction manual? <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't slept since Tuesday. It's now Thursday. What are we doing? Um, um, so um, the, the team at St Vincent's let me sort of enjoy Harry for a bit by about, uh, April, May, my mum dragged me back into the hospital, um, had an appointment and I really had to kick things on um, with, um, you know, the, the workup and everything. Um, so I started the workup May, June, um, so attended all of the appointments, did my six minutes uh, walking test where I my oxygen stats got down into the 50s and I literally was almost passed out on the floor. Um, oh my, my fingers were black, literally from no oxygen. I was perpetually blue. I looked like a Smurf. Um, and I was, I was doing motherhood. Like I was really, there's no, there's no camera, sweetheart. Um, <clears throat> So I so one of the last things I had to tick off the list um, of the workup was um, a right heart catheter. So that was um, going through my femoral vein in, in my groin, putting a wire all the way through my body into my heart and testing the pressures inside my heart. Now, if those pressures were too high, I was past being able to be transplanted and I wouldn't get a transplant and I and I would that was a huge day if the if the pressures in my heart were too high I wasn't going to um I wasn't going to qualify for transplant um and if they were too low I wasn't going to qualify for, for transplant either um so they had to fall in a really particular range um which is a lot of pressure and you kind of know that, you kind of put it out of your head. Anyway, um, the team doing the right heart cath 
Um, it took it was taking a little while, and the wire was inside me, inside my heart, and um, I all of a sudden felt um, just a huge, huge pain start in my liver, and my liver just blew up like a like a balloon. I could I could feel it under the under the sheet. I had my hand on on my liver, just feeling this ball, and I started to talk about like something something's wrong something something in my body is moving I'm and I don't know what what it is um and just as I went to say that that actually that ball of pain actually moved up into my chest cavity and I could feel it taking up the space where my lungs were supposed to be breathing um and I knew I was gonna go I, I knew that I was gonna stop breathing um and I looked at the doctor and I tried to describe what I was feeling as best as I could before um, being rendered unconscious, which I did. I had a respiratory arrest. Um, the last things I said to her while reaching out to her was, I'm going, I'm going. And I remember that really clearly. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, I I knew I there was something. There was something in my body. It turned out that it was fluid. So my heart was failing quite oh, badly wow. and my body wasn't coping with laying down flat um and that 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 fluid fluid was just um essentially drowning me um from the inside um so I um I'd stopped breathing uh the doctors called a code blue my mum was sitting around the corner in the waiting room with my four month five five month old child in his pram stroller um the ICU team came I had a seizure and that seemed to wake my body up um I opened my eyes and I had a sea of faces surrounding me and a nurse on my right saying to me Miranda can you tell me where you are can you tell me where you are and I remember just scanning the um just scanning the ceiling and thinking I have no idea what's going on right now. I cannot even make words come out of my mouth because my brain, I could feel the lack of oxygen in my brain. My eyes were open, but I was not capable of forming any kind of words. I couldn't even say no. So... um Someone, one of the doctors was holding on a, uh, a high-flow oxygen mask over my face. I could feel the oxygen being pushed into my mouth. Like I could, I could feel the, the high flow. Um, it was one of those black it sort of sucks onto your face almost. You know, it wasn't just a, just a casual oxygen mask. It was like, yeah, it's, you know, like, it's, like the ones you have in surgery almost. Yeah, it felt, yeah. So, um I, every breath that I took in, it was as if I could feel, it was as if I could feel like switches going back on in my brain, like connections being made again. Um, so eventually um, after scanning the room and looking for clues and looking at all the faces and looking at this nurse saying to me, where are you, where are you, and thinking, I, uh, I can't even describe the feeling of it was almost like being trapped inside yourself. Um, 
Of course. And I looked at her and I took one more breath in and all of a sudden I, I realised I could talk again and I knew where I was and I said, I'm at St Vincent's and I collectively I just heard the entire room sigh. Like I think everyone was like, I just took oh, a sigh too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. So um, I then was like, get the mask off me, I need to vomit. <laughs> Um, so I turned my head and I was trying to vomit and I, like, I had an empty stomach, so I wasn't, but, um, my, one of my brothers is a doctor, he's a, he's a GP. Um, and when I told him that little, that little piece of info, like I felt like I needed to be sick as soon as, as soon as I could think again, I felt like I needed to be sick. And he said, that's a really good sign. He said that they would have been looking for that sign because apparently when you come back, one of the signs is that you need to vomit. So oh, wow. that's, I, I guess that is blood going back into your, so, you know, the blood would have stopped in my digestive system completely. Mm. It would have just been trying to keep my brain alive at that point, I think. Um, so I think yeah. that that's, that's the science of it. It would have been the blood sort of going back into all of those non-essential areas. Um, I remember looking at my arms when I was, when I was back and they'd stop sort of yelling at me <laughs> to tell, yelling at me to say, what's your name? Where are you? Um, um, I looked at my arms and they were like ice, ice blue. And I had a whole bunch of central lines in that I hadn't even known that they'd done. I, yeah, I just, I, I think I had as little oxygen in me as you can as a human and not actually die. Like I, yeah, it was, it was amazing. What Um, kind of time frame are we looking at over here? Like what sort of time had uh, elapsed from you feeling that initial pain? um, The pain was, it was like seconds. It was seconds of me literally Mm. saying the pain's moving up into my chest and now I can't breathe. I'm going, I'm going. That was it. And I was out for mm. not not breathing for oh, minutes, not even. Wow. Um, and then I don't know how long it took me. All in all, I think from beginning to me being able to speak was probably less than five minutes. Wow. And, yeah, that like. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, just so quick. But the takeaway I got from that moment was that I'm I'm actually not afraid of death because mm. when I stopped breathing and I had that moment on the table and I was gone, I there was no pain. It didn't hurt. Once once I was unconscious, it didn't hurt. So um yeah, that kind of like uh, just you know, I from that moment That's from that moment really you know, interesting. Sorry. That's actually really, really interesting. Like Yeah. I guess, you yeah. know, from a from a chronic illness perspective and from someone that's lived a life of being a patient, you know, I've I've lost my battle more than once, I'm not gonna lie. And 
I kind of agree with you. Once you do lose consciousness, you do lose that sensation. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really, really interesting thing to talk about with regards to what we've faced. And mm. Mm. yeah, however you look at it, I mean, we're all transplant, we're like transplant recipients have inherently, have inherently faced death and looked it right in the face. It's just some have gone a little bit closer to the edge than others. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah it's really interesting to hear about people's perspective of, of exactly that, that moment where you fall off the cliff, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's the really interesting thing about transplant as well because you get to get mm. that close and then you get to turn around and march back into life. And yep. that, so that with regards to that, huge gift. Yeah. Um, Enormous. Yeah. 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 And you, also, so you were being worked up for this at this time. You were being worked up for your transplant at this time. This, and this is a, this is, I'm um, guessing that you obviously passed. Yeah, obviously I passed. Um, I went to ICU <laughs> after that little, so the, 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 um, the right heart cath wasn't finished. Um, but I had been shipped off to yeah. ICU. A social worker and a nurse had to approach my mother that I'm sure is part of her trauma scar today. Um, she was sitting with my baby and she was told something happened with Miranda. She's in ICU now. And my mother was like, what? Like, what? like are we even going to get Yeah. Um, so the next day I got yeah, out of ICU. I just, look, I just called it my dummy run to ICU. It was just my... It was my initial, like, I'm going to be back here after my transplant, get to know me. Um, <laughs> funnily enough, the nurse that looked after me that on um, that um, admission was the nurse that looked after me after my transplant. So it really, oh, it no. really was a practice from both of us. So um, we, um, I was back up in CCU, currently in the coronary care unit the next day, literally. Um, and they put me through a right heart cath again. <laughs> they were like, we're really sorry that we're going to do this to you, but um, are you up for a, Are you up for another go? And I was like, oh, sure, let's do it. So they propped me up a little bit so that I wouldn't um, – so that I wouldn't have that issue with the fluid again. They got it done really quickly. I obviously passed. Um, Professor McDonald came into that. Um, came in. Came into to that that right heart cath, and he, um, as he walked back out the door, he said, "Congratulations, Miranda." And I realised that that meant that my my heart was in the range that you know I, I was going to be saved. I was going to be one of those really lucky people. Um, wow. So I was in hospital that week. They they sort of held on to me to make sure that nothing else went wrong. I was listed on the 24th of July. Um, four weeks later, I was going into the hospital the last week of August, going to the hospital every, driving all the way into St Vincent's. Um, I live an hour away from St Vincent's. Um, driving all the way yeah. in to have IV uh, Lasix, given to me so Lasix is a diuretic it gets fluid off your body um my stomach was so distended with fluid that it had stopped absorbing any medication I was taking so the only way I was getting relief from that fluid was if I was having it put in my IV so every day I was having a cannula put in um and opting to have they, they offered for me to go home with the cannula 
Um, but I had this baby and I just imagined him pulling it out of me. <laughs> so every day I was getting a new cannula put in because I said, oh, look, I won't, you know. They said, look, we will send you home on it with it. You know, we're not worried that you're going to do anything terrible with it like some people. Yeah, um, yeah of course. Yeah, um, but I was having a cannula. The Thursday I went in twice. I went in once in the morning and once in the afternoon to have two hits of lazy. Um, oh, wow. Which is mad. Like my mum was driving me. I was no longer driving. Um, um, yeah, I was, I, I, yeah, it was, it was a huge, huge weight that everyone was carrying and, and yet we didn't really talk about it. You don't really give oxygen to the fact that we're really walking the line between life and death and no one actually knows what's going to happen um one of my last appointments was with the psych which um you have to pass the psychological appointment to get uh to for surgeons to say yes to transplanting you um mm-hmm. one of the the biggest thing that the psychologist said to me was she said Miranda that like they ask you like what's your reason for living obviously I had this baby so my reason for living was was with me every day was going to get me up out of bed every day like that was that was a no-brainer but um the biggest thing to me at that appointment this was the Friday this was the Friday that I'd gone in for the Lasix um she said to me Miranda 90% of surviving this is in your head if you can stay positive and like surviving this operation and getting through all of this and accepting this organ 90% of this is in your head um and and that's so true and for me it's been really really true And, and and that's not that's not saying that people that don't get through it they they weren't they weren't right it just means it just means that Mm. They just fell into that 10% that just that just couldn't, you know, it was just a, a body thing, a metabolic thing, a science thing. Like it just, you know, but I, I really feel like to to face these huge things, you need to be, um, you need to be right in in your own head. And that's that's acceptance and it's perspective and it's all of that. So, um mm. That was a Friday. Um, Prof Matt called me into his office on the Friday, and um, he said to me, "Miranda, I want, I want to admit you." And I burst into tears, and I said to him, um, "Please don't admit me. Like, I, I know that I should be in a hospital. I know that I'm just dragging myself around, but just let me go and have one more weekend with 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 my family, with Harry. Just." And he's like, "Don't, don't you do anything on the weekend?" I, I you know, I got the registrars on my side and I got them to fight for me and he was like, oh, okay. So so the Monday I was going to go in and we were going to start having conversations about LVADs, which is a mechanical heart um, because that's, mm. that's what I did. Um, my heart. My heart's my heart was pumping at 12%. So I had 12% wow. function. So no wonder I look like a Smurf, like seriously. Um, and I have really pale skin, so it was just like translucent and ice blue. Um, yeah. So, um, 
a normal functioning heart operates at about 70%. So never 100%, but I was like, where you would be 70%, I was 12. Um, yeah. I don't know how I was walking around, and I actually think that that is my brain's capacity. I think that that was all my brain doing that yeah. because my body would have packed it in. Um, yeah. Uh, so I burst into tears and I said to him, just don't keep me, please. So he didn't keep me. I promised to come in first thing Monday morning. Um, but on but at 8.30 on Sunday morning, the phone rang and it was a transplant coordinator. And she said, Miranda, a heart has come in and it's yours and you've got to be here in two hours. And. Oh, my gosh. That's like, that was it. Like, it was just. It was like it was meant to be. It just, you know, yeah. but I mean, that in itself is a bittersweet moment because because you're praying that you get through, but you also know that there's a family that has just lost someone and said yes to organ donation and answered all of those questions to donate life and and dealt with that really long process of of donating organs of a loved one who's laying there on life support. Um, funnily enough, my family has been through organ donation on the other side of things as well um, with a really young person. Yep. Two young people in our family um, have donated their organs, which is it's crazy. It just is, you know, but I've just learned to live with the crazy. Um, yes. So... <laughs> So um, I, got in the, I got in the shower and I got ready to go to the hospital. Um, and I just remember, I just, I broke down and I was just making deals with anyone who would listen. Um, God, the universe, mother, mother nature, a higher power, praying to my donor, like, you know, I'll look after your heart. I promise you just let me get through this. Like all of those or, you know, you grasp at everything that you think that you don't believe in or that you do believe in um, and, yeah, and I went in to have the operation and it obviously it, uh, it succeeded. <laughs> um, well, obviously you're still here talking to me and I guess yeah. you must be close to your um, fifth anniversary now fifth yeah so, so um august 30th will be my fifth um heart anniversary um but it, uh, you know it's kind of like it's kind of like a new birthday every year i get a couple of birthdays every year it's it's like absolutely yeah yeah five years into my new life and and yeah. what ha and what has happened more recently i guess what's you've you've you're obviously still here and with us which is amazing mm -hmm. but what's 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 happened more recently for you? Um, well, transplant. Transplant kind of gave me the, I guess the um, the ability to um, what would you say? It gave me it gave me a reason to choose a completely different life. It actually um, it gave me it gave me the courage. It showed me that I was essentially I was living a half life, um, um, a life that I didn't that I wasn't really in love with. Um, 
and that was really that was really hard to admit um, in the beginning. Um, but I, yeah, I, I realized that. Look, if I was going to if I was going to live with this second chance and live with um, with this gift that I had to give it everything I could possibly give it. So um, a few things happened. I started public speaking um, and um, speak for a number of uh, charities and organisations and helped launch Red Cross's Lifeblood and um, Victor Chang and Heart Foundation and I spoke into New South Wales Health. Um, and I also came out as gay, which is really interesting. Um, something that I knew that I had sort of just ignored all of my life and thought that uh, I wasn't really a strong enough person to admit it and I wasn't, um, that it was something that could sort of live in the shadows of my life and that I didn't, um, I didn't, I didn't really acknowledge it. Um, all, I think all of that background stuff really comes to the forefront when you're given a perspective of this is my second chance and I actually can't waste it. I need to, I need yeah. to do something different. And for me personally, that was um, coming out as gay and living authentically. Um, so, and I think it's such a cliche to sort of say oh living your best life or living your true self or, or or whatever but when you have faced what you have there is mm. no other way it's it's really you do need to really live your true life and and be the be the best you can at it and be the most authentic that you can at it and I think for yeah. you coming out was part of that it was actually becoming your yeah. true self yeah. And yeah. did your, did your, um, I want to say mental status change because of it. It's not quite what I mean, but were no, you happier? Yeah, I know, that, I know that, what you, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. So mm. when I accepted myself, what actually happened was I have experienced, um, really deeper connection and in, in my, in my relationships around me, um, I'm able to talk um, more openly and be more free and real and that has meant that I've deepened deepened relationships that I already had and I've, there's also been yeah. space for new relationships and new like sort of adventures and things that I wouldn't have ever said yes to um now I'm of I'm able to do and I'm able to um experience and it's um it's yeah it's it's a really sort of important like for me it was a it was a really important part of my post-transplant life um of course I'm I'm really um, I label myself as a gay woman, um, and and I've had quite a few people push back on that and say, "Well, um, why do you need a label? You know, like straight people don't have to say I'm a straight woman, you know." But because I had lived um, 
in the shadows for so long and because I hadn't even admitted it to myself for so long that now I can call myself a proud gay woman so I do like it's that I I get a um I get a sense of pride from that so Mm. um acceptance as well and that's so hard for people to achieve oh yeah yeah Yeah. to accept yourself for who you truly are is a really massive thing that most people will never get to do yeah 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 so um I mean obviously that um journey for me um it did hurt people along the way because I had to end my marriage of course. Um, yeah, of course. Of course. And, of, like, we we had talked about, um, you know, like, like did it, did ending a marriage really, you know, did it have to come to an end? But we, we both, we both knew that for, or in order for both of us to be happy, um, it had, it had to. And, and, mm-hmm. uh, Harry's dad had, um, a bit of, a bit of anger about about that at first, and I think, I think he even felt a bit of um, shame, like like my wife my wife turned gay, like, but I actually see it as I was with him for twelve years, and I was married to him. Boy, I was married to him for almost ten, and I see it as as he really really loved me and really looked after me and was really very a very kind and gentle guy and he was he was so much so that he held on to me for 12 years when when I probably shouldn't have been with a man so I think I look at it from that point of view and we've talked about it like that and um you know whereas it's not something that was ever against him it was it was more that I just I just got to know myself a bit better and we just didn't click anymore. And, yeah, so, you know, and, look, he deserves someone that was I guess it wasn't a choice. It it wasn't you who chose suddenly. You woke up one morning and went, I'm going to choose this. No, I didn't didn't go, hey, I'm I'm going to this. It had always been boiling under the surface. Mm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Absolutely. You know, it, it, it made it. I want to say your transplant made you sort of accept yourself for who you truly are and that's a really gorgeous thing and mm. that wasn't anything against against your husband. It was just the way it was. It just took that life-changing episode for yeah. you to understand that. And, that, and I, never, I never. I'm sure there's plenty of people who would never, never admit to it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, I went, I went back to the psychologist, the transplant um, psychologist and said, well, this has happened to me after transplant. Like, and she said, "Look, it's not. It's actually not unheard of. It's just, it's." She said, "It's. It is. It is rare, but it's not unheard of that um, people can change sexuality after transplant. And it's just simply that you realise that time is finite, and and you've got to get the most out of life. And, um, you know, and and look, I, I also didn't want." my my husband to waste his life either either because I was never going to be the wife that adored him and that's what he deserved so mm. you know and I'm sure I'm sure that he will get and, remarried and, which you know I think is great yeah. You know? yeah and I'm sure you've both grown tremendously yeah. as people and 
That's yeah. only got to serve Harry absolutely the best. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Because ultimately you were together and had him as a result and that's incredible. But yeah. But for both yeah. of you to be happy yeah. and well-adjusted is a rare thing. So, you know, yeah. it's. Yeah. it's and able yeah. to able to co-parent and um mm. yeah yeah it's it's yeah it's a good thing we didn't we didn't separate because there was any hate we separated just because we grew apart that's it yeah absolutely absolutely yeah so the rest of and Miranda through all of this yeah go on <laughs> please go I was, on <laughs> I was just going to say the, the rest of my life post-transplant is just um I think I just I operate now from a place of just um, what resonates authentically with me and I I do a lot of advocacy work. I do a lot of talking to people. Um, you know, I I do a, I guess I do a lot of a lot of public speaking. A, a lot of I'm part of a um, ad campaign coming up for for Victor Chang um the research institute so all of that um um just um yeah I, it sort of gave me a bit of life purpose as well that's that's um of course yeah I have this I have this big lived experience and I know that it's big and it sounds bigger than what it is when I when I tell it in a compact hour and 23 minutes but um (laughs) (laughs) but I'm I'm determined to use that I'm determined to to use that and and use that as as a career as as a um inspirational speaking life coaching I'm studying social work at uni um I really want to work in um the palliative care side of social work um walking families through end of life and and what that looks like for different for different people and working with palliative care patients doing legacy work um I look at I look at a lot of what I do now a lot of my writing um I'm writing a memoir I have have been doing that for five years one day it might be done um Mother, well, technically, it should never be done really until you're uh, yeah. not here anymore. And well, that, then that, that's that the end chunk of the story. Of the life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I thought that my memoir finished with transplant to 14,000 feet because I jumped out of a plane, but um, on my second year anniversary, but um, I think it actually ends with my coming out story, but um, mm. um, yeah, I look at, I look at a lot of Basically everything I do now is it's legacy work. That's that's what it is. It's it's um it's all it's all for a cause and it's all it's all to, you know, leave a mark. Um I was just recently in day surgery. I've had a little bit of a hiccup over the last two weeks. I've been in ICU, out of ICU, having a cardiac biopsy to check for rejection that showed no rejection, how, you know, all of, all of this stuff. And I was back in day surgery on Thursday. Um, and, um, I met, I, I saw a young girl and her parents were walked into day surgery by one of the coordinators and, um, they, 
I could see, you know, we we can see the the translator. We can see that, you know, you can, when, yeah. you, when you've walked that path yourself, you you know what they're up for. And I could see that the nurse was handing her over to the um, day surgery nurses to prep for the operation, and and I could just see on on their faces, her her parents and herself, that they were just um, terrified and almost grey, just just with like worry and hope and worry and hope like all of all of that mixed emotion all at once and um um I had a chance and I walked I walked by her bed and um they she looked up at me and I and I smiled and I said to her good luck and she's like and I said I had a transplant five years ago I said you can do this I said you like this is it you're you're going to have a wonderful life you can do this. This is this is your moment. I know, you know. And she was like, "Oh, I'm so glad that you spoke to me." And I said, "We're all throughout the hospital." I said, "I've just come in for a little tune-up today." I said, "I said you're not even going to understand what your life is going to be, and I'm so excited for you right now." Um, and when I left the hospital that evening, um, her parents were sitting at an abandoned table in the cafe with all the lights out. Um, and her mum looked over to me and she said, thank you so much for talking to her today. She needed she needed to hear that today. Like you helped her so much. And I thought that's what I, why I do what I do because exactly. like that, that little moment of connection just, I mean, I, I just hope that it, that it changed her worrying brain into a brain of, of hope and, and thoughts of the future because that's how we survive it because you just keep moving forward absolutely yeah and if you changed her you changed her mindset to that 90 percent yeah I guess going back to your your quote like to to give her that that little bit of mental strength to to pull her through yeah and I guess that's that's essentially what we're all here for isn't it really to change one person's life yeah yeah in any way shape or form yeah yeah and it's it's yeah, just to, and it's those little moments that do that. Yeah, and that's just a small moment of connection, like just to, you know. Yeah. I I understand also that it took someone like me who's not afraid to um, poke into yeah. someone else's face for a <laughs> moment because <laughs> because I'm very aware also that that you know that's possibly a moment that I you know you know her family could have been like don't talk you know like you know but. Yeah, I'm. I'm lucky. I've never had that response from anyone, but I'm. I'm also mindful as well that you know, people are very private, and you know. But I, I almost felt her reaching out for something to hold, to something to grab onto, and I, mm-hmm. I wanted to give her the opportunity to just grab on to my words, just for a moment, and yeah, go to absolutely. sleep thinking about this random woman who walked past and said, I'm five years post-transplant in August. You can do this too. And so, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Miranda, I'm sure you made all the difference in that girl's life and I hope I hope she's listening or does listen to this one. Yeah, day, yeah. Goes, oh, that was me. I hope she's awake. She's awake be, now. Yeah. She's probably, exactly. probably awake now, yeah. <laughs> but also, like, I think, if you had put, and I guess 
I see this in you. If you'd put yourself in your those in that girl's shoes and you had been that person five years before, if someone had to walk by your bed and said, hey, you're going to be okay, you've got this, mm. it would have meant the world to you at the time, I'm sure. And so that's – Oh, yeah, I, I would have been – I would have been like, face of, Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And you know what? I had, yeah. I had those people in clinic after my transplant where they were like, mm. oh, yeah, I'm here for my two-year checkup. And I'm like, oh, like you're not – you're not shaking from the top. Like you never think you're going to be there. Yeah. No, exactly. no. Like I always you thought have a that that questions it. all at once. Yeah, I thought that all of the horrible drug stuff would stay with me forever, and I'd always be this like, you know, person with the shakes because that's what tacrolimus does, and you know, but you don't realize that you you're not going to be there forever, and so yeah. So anyway, that's yeah. It's nice, nice to nice to walk. Walk a path and give give hope to those behind you, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then see them walk beside you. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Miranda, it's been absolutely amazing uh, talking to you and we've, we haven't really touched all of your story. So <laughs> maybe we'll have you back one day to explore a little bit more. <laughs> and if not, well, then we'll have your memoir to publicise. Oh, my gosh, yeah, when, when, I, when I'm done writing it, sure. <laughs> thank you so so much for joining me today thank you thanks for having me and thank you everybody for listening it's been an amazing story I'm sure you all know so um, I'll pop some links up for Miranda's favorite organizations and what she wants to promote up on her show notes as well so um, thank you so much and thank you for joining us for another Tough Cookie podcast we will see you next Thursday thanks guys stay healthy stay safe and stay sweet bye Thank you for listening to the Tough Cookie Podcast. To find out more about The Sweetest Gift, go to www.thesweetestgift.org.au. Thank you for joining us on the Tough Cookie Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please join us next Thursday for another amazing story of hope, resilience, and really overcoming the odds. Thanks. Thanks.